out. Everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. Joined in the studio is my co-host, Austin. What's up, man? Hey, what's up? Today, we have a especially dark episode. We're going to be covering the night that the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida became an absolute war zone. It's been a while since we've covered a mass casualty event. I can't even remember the last one that I did here was probably Las Vegas, maybe. And that was quite a while ago. And so I don't like to cover these that often because they are just so heavy and sad and just, it takes a lot to prepare for these episodes. But the reason that I do it is because I think it's important to obviously remember those that died in this event, but also at times where it seems the world is at its most evil, what you find is people step up and find the courage to not only survive, but to also help one another. And I think that's one of the most extraordinary things that you find with these mass casualty events is that when faced with potentially imminent death, people dig deep within them and find the courage that they never knew that they had in order to not only help themselves, but help others around them. And I think that in itself is such an, such an amazing thing. And one of the few positives you can take away from these events. So that is what we're going to be getting into today. This is a heavy one. This is a dark one, just forewarning, but I think it's a very important one. And also when these things happen, I feel like when you're watching the news, you're just getting kind of blasted with sort of the headlines and, you know, the shooter and this is what's going on versus you don't really get to dig into what actually happened or the events leading up to this particular night. And so I think when covering these events, it kind of gives you a much clearer picture and understanding of what really happened. And for me, one of the things that I usually take away from these episodes is if I ever find myself in this situation, what would I do? And that's what it really makes me think of. If I was ever in a situation like this where somebody, you know, opened fire at an event, you know, a concert club, something like that, how would I react? And it really just, I think it's an important thing to think about these days because this does happen so often that you almost can't not think about it. And I know when I go to venues these days, that's always in the back of my mind. I'm always thinking about where the exits are. I'm always thinking if something were to happen in here, what am I going to do? I don't know about you. Yeah. I try to force those thoughts to the furthest back of my mind, but yeah, I I think living in America, it's just that part of uh, what we have to deal with. So yeah, it's best to be prepared for something like that. Exactly. Exactly. So maybe there's something to learn from these events as, as tragic as they are. But with that being said, we're just going to go ahead and jump right in to this episode. This was a sick person that was really confused. And I did the shooting. And went crazy. Although it's still early in the investigation, we know enough to say that this was an act of terror and an act of hate. 20 gunshot wounds coming, I need you now. To receive 36 victims in 36 minutes, there are probably very few hospitals in the U.S. that have experienced 
that many casualties all at one time. You see people screaming and falling, and there was blood everywhere. I condemn what he did. I wish I did know. If I did catch him, I would have arrested it myself. On June 11, 2016, it was Latin night at Pulse Nightclub, a gay nightclub downtown in Orlando, Florida. It was a night like any other, and the place where the Orlando gay community found acceptance and love. But in the early morning hours of the next day, this club would be the scene of the second deadliest mass shooting by a single gunman and the deadliest incident of violence against LGBTQ people in U.S. history. The venue would soon become a reminder of hatred, even though this nightclub was once a haven for the gay community. Pulse Nightclub was opened in 2004 by Barbara Poma. Barbara's brother passed away in 1991 from AIDS, so the club is named for John's Pulse to live on. She wanted to carry on the fun, loving, and accepting spirit that her brother found in the underground gay clubs, and she also wanted to make the club something more than just another gay club. So each night they had themed events, and once a month they featured educational events for the LGBTQ plus community like HIV prevention, breast cancer awareness, and immigrants' rights. It also partnered with advocacy groups that organized local pride festivals and fought for civil rights. As years passed, it became a local favorite for the Orlando gay crowd. It became known for its awesome lighting, incredible sound system, and an endless list of shows, including drag nights and erotic dancing. Inside of the club, there are four main areas. The hip-hop room to the left of the main entrance, and beyond that were the restrooms. To the right of the entrance was the main bar where the DJ stage and dance floor were. And connected to the dance floor was a patio that extended along the outside of the building. In the early morning hours on June 12, 2016, the music bumped as DJ Ray Rivera played a set to 320 people inside. Around 1.52 a.m., a man entered the nightclub. He bought a ticket and walked back out of the main entrance. At 2.01 a.m., bartenders announced last call. When the man returned through the main entrance of the Pulse nightclub, but now he was armed with a Sig Sauer MCX semi-automatic rifle and a 9mm Glock 17 semi-automatic pistol. He had strapped hundreds of rounds across his chest and ammo belt. He then immediately turned to his right and began shooting with no hesitation. The smell of gun smoke filled the air near the entrance, and at first, even as the loud gunshots were going off, Not many people knew what was actually going on. The shots fired were masked by thumping music. An off-duty police officer, Adam Gruller, was working security on the scene immediately and heard gunshots. He approached the main entrance to the nightclub and watched as two people burst through the doors. Both were immediately executed by the shooter who was just inside of them. The officer could see the shooter just barely. He could see the rifle and part of the suspect. So the officer took aim and fired off four rounds into the main entrance. His shots ended up missing the shooter and hitting the double doors as they swung shut. The off-duty officer immediately called for backup over his radio. The shooter then walked to the right and into the main dance room while holding the rifle. After shooting across the room into the crowd, he then fired off pistol rounds into bodies that were already on the floor. And over the next few minutes, he would continue to fire a minimum of 186 times with his assault rifle 
and at least 22 times with his pistol. He paced across the dance floor, continuously shooting. The officer then wrapped around the building toward the patio where he could see the shooter inside. From his position by the patio gates, the officer fired three more rounds when no one else was in his line of fire. Everyone except the shooter was lying on the floor, crouched down, and heading towards the exits. People inside scrambled toward the bathrooms, fled through the main entrance or toward the outdoor patio and broke through the patio gates. A 26-year-old fitness instructor, Angel Cullen, had been hugging his friend goodbye when the bullets began. He was shot multiple times through his hips, leg, and back. Three bullets shattered his leg and he couldn't walk. He just lied on the floor, helpless, as he watched others scatter toward different directions of the club. When the shooting began, 911 would be called 603 times that night by victims, family, and friends, as well as bystanders, rescue workers, and later even the shooter himself. Inside the club, the shooter then wandered toward the stage where the DJ booth was. Here's a clip of the DJ talking about what he saw. Let's go back to that moment. You were sort of winding the crowd down. Yeah, it was about 2, 2.05, bringing, you know, kind of bringing the vibe down because usually after that, you know, everybody's going to close up the bar tabs and, and head home. So, and then all of a sudden I heard a couple pops. Did you think it was gunshot? I thought it was firecrackers. I thought it sounded like firecrackers. So I thought maybe somebody was playing a joke. Turn the volume down again, or, you know, I had to turn down, turn it down again, and then there was some more. And then followed by some more, and that's when basically people were running and... and so you were out on the patio. This was happening in the main room? Yeah. What, what exactly could you hear? All the gunshots. And it was bursts and bursts Burst, and bursts of three, gunshots. Three, four, five at a time. Um, people running out, people uh, heading towards the exit, you know, trying just trying to get out. I didn't realize what it, what it was until I kind of, you know, looked inside and saw everybody running out. And at that point, you know, I had the music was off, ducked down behind the DJ booth. You know, people were running out, hiding underneath my DJ booth and running out. Um, at, there was a little pause for about 15 seconds, maybe 10, 15 seconds. And then at that point, the person under the booth that was with me, I was like, all right, go. I went behind her and then we just headed so out. So you guys were able to run out into yeah. the street? We ran out the exit gate and then uh, that's when the shots were still going off. The moment Ray heard the shots had stopped, the shooter's gun had actually jammed. A spent shell casing didn't eject from the rifle properly. And many believe that this one jam shell casing saved countless lives inside the nightclub that night. The shooter then fumbled with his rifle, trying to remove the shell by hand. So the people inside who are still alive use these critical seconds to escape the nightclub. But the shooter still had his 9mm handgun. He abandoned the main dance floor and headed into the area where the bathrooms were. While the gunshots had stopped, many who had ran into the bathrooms for safety thought the shooter might have left. But they soon realized that he was coming for them next. The shooter entered the smaller south bathroom and fired off a round. Then he entered the north bathroom, but was silent for a moment. I'm going to play a clip that we found on Reddit that is truly chilling. That was taken by some of the people that were hiding inside of the bathroom. After firing a few more rounds, the shooter returned to the south bathroom. He approached the bathroom stalls where people were hiding 
and then he fired off rounds over and under the doors, killing and injuring many more who thought they were safe. After this, he paced back to the north bathroom once again. One victim, Amanda Grawl, was shot in the back during the first few minutes of the attack, but managed to escape one of the bathrooms. When the shooter continued to fire off rounds into the bathroom stall where she was hiding, she was shot three more times, but survived. Amanda and the others who were still alive took cover the best that they could. Here's Amanda talking about being in the bathroom. He was asking um, uh, if anybody here was um, African American, and he asked that a couple times, and they they had said yes, even though I am Spanish. But they, you know, they protected me. And he says, "Oh, he goes. You can understand where I'm coming from. You know, I'm just tired of um, Americans bombing my women, women and children." And they said, yes, yes, we can understand. Um, and that was it. And then he told us he better not catch us on um, any cell phones. Those who had been shot were either dead or desperate to find a way to survive. 20-year-old Tierra Parker had been shot through the abdomen and the bullet had exited through her back. Her friend, 20-year-old Patience Carter, was with her and they had made it into the bathroom. As for her cousin, 18-year-old Akira Murray, she had made it safely outside after being shot in the arm. But when she first noticed Tierra wasn't there, she headed back inside to save her, and she found her cousin inside of a bathroom stall. And so the gunman came in, and you hear him trying to load the gun. We're all, like, scrambling around in the bathroom, screaming at the top of our lungs. People are getting hit by bullets, like... Blood is everywhere, and then there was the moment where he stopped shooting in the bathroom, and that's when I first realized that my leg was shot. So the bullet went in there? Yeah, it went in here, and it came out of my back. Akira tried to negotiate with the killer. She was talking to the killer? Mm -hmm. What was she saying? Stop, we're hurt, we already hit, like, don't, like, please leave us alone. Akira, she was shot in her arm right here, and then dropped to the floor because I feel the pain, like, I started to feel the pain. And you laid on top of your cousin's arm because you wanted to stop the bleeding. Yes. Like tilted over and kind of like looked at me. But I guess he must have thought I died with my eyes open. And I just kind of kept staring at him. And, I, and from then, I thought in my mind that he was going to shoot me in my face. But like I was just sitting there and I just stared at him. And he like then after he got up, you just hear him say, oh, yeah. The gunman had stopped shooting for a while. He actually made a call to 911 saying that the reason why he's doing this is because he wants America to stop bombing his country. He pledges allegiance to ISIS. He asked us that there was any black people in the stall. And he was like, yeah, it's like six or seven of us in here in this particular stall. And we were like, he's like, I don't have a problem with you guys. He's like, I know what you guys been through and like, you know, in slavery and everything. He said, it's nothing personal. I'm just trying to send a message to the government to let them know to stop killing my people on a rock. All I remember him saying is, hey, you. And he shot three more times and killed three more people. Both Tierra and Patience made it out alive. But Akira, who had come back in to rescue them, didn't make it. Her father later blamed his daughter's death on Tierra. But by now, more officers had arrived and huddled near the main entrance. The shooter's last few shots could be heard going off inside of the south bathroom. So police broke through a large glass window and entered near the main entrance. They headed to the bar and the hip-hop room since they knew the shots were isolated on that side of the building where the bathrooms were. 
After finding positions behind cover, they looked down the hallway toward the bathrooms and saw a dark figure crouching down, moving between bathrooms. Here's some body cam footage of police entering Pulse nightclub. Got a door up top with a sheet. All right. Got to need to get that past the OPD and Metro 9. We just have a wide perimeter. See if we can contain this computer still active and operating. We probably got about 20 gunshot victims. But if you know, they're going to need a lot of people. Two officers had fired several shots towards the south bathroom door, believing the crouching person was the active shooter, but they missed. Their bullets punctured the wall and door toward the south bathroom. Meanwhile, the hostages trapped inside couldn't tell whether the shots were from police or from the shooter. Moments later, the same crouching figure came out of the south bathroom with their hands up, but police soon realized that this was not the shooter. So they escorted the victim outside to safety. After this, the shooter began his long standoff with police. They weren't sure what weapons or explosives he might have had while barricaded in the north bathroom and he stayed there for the next three hours. While there, he exchanged three phone calls with police and police dispatch. In between calls, he pulled out his phone in the dark bathroom and began Googling how to spell and pronounce the word allegiance. His first call came in around 2.30 a.m. Here's that shooter's 911 call. I want to let you know I'm in Orlando, and I did the shooting. What's your name? My name is, I pledge of allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi of the Islamic State. Hi there, this is Orlando Police. Who am I speaking with, please? You're speaking with the person who pledged his allegiance to the Islamic State, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Okay, um, can you tell me where you are right now so I can get you some help? No, because you have to tell America to stop bombing Syria and Iraq. They're killing a lot of innocent people. So what, what am I to do here when pe- my people are getting killed over there? You get what I'm saying? I, I do. I completely get what you're saying. Can you tell me what you know about what's going on tonight? What are, what's going on yes. is that I feel the pain of the people getting killed in Syria and Iraq and all over the Muslim America. Okay. So, so, have you done something about that? Yes, I have. Tell me what you did, please. No, you already know what I did. My homeboy, Tamerlan Sarnayev, did his thing on the Boston Marathon. My homeboy, Munir Abu Salha, did his thing, okay? So now, it's my turn, okay? Okay, let's start. My name's Andy. What's yours? My name is Islamic Soldier, okay? Mm-hmm. Tell me what's going on right now, Omar. Yo, yo, the airstrike that killed Abu Wahid a few weeks ago, yes, that's what triggered it, okay? Okay. Okay? They shouldn't have bombed and killed Abu Wahid, okay? You see? Now you feel, now you feel how it is. The shooter mentions Abu Wahid, who is one of the leaders of the Islamic State of Iraq. This group has been known by a few different names. It's known as IS, ISIS, or ISIL, the Islamic State of Iraq, and the Levant. Um, and this is basically a powerful terrorist militant group that used to be a part of Al-Qaeda. You've probably heard of them. So Abu Wahib later became one of its major leaders. 
Early in his militant career, he had broken out of a U.S. detention camp in southern Iraq and became a field commander of Anbar. By this time, he was only 27 years old. So Iraqi officials ended up blaming him for a long list of terrorist-related attacks. And there were two numbers that they said they had a bounty on his head for. Some say it was $50,000, and others say it was up to $500,000. There was a main highway that cut through Anbar that connected Baghdad to Jordan and Syria, and this became one of the most dangerous highways in Iraq. So ISIL tried to control this highway so they could provide refugee for their militant allies. To control this highway, Abu Wahib committed terrible and horrific attacks of violence along this road. In one attack on June 2nd, 2013, he and his men interrogated truck drivers over what religion they were affiliated with. They eventually identified the drivers as Alawites, which was a sect of people who ISIL had fought against. They forced the drivers out of their vehicles, and in a video later posted online, Abu Wahib can be seen without a mask which was actually very rare for ISIL militants. You usually see them with face covers, but this would later get him the name, the Barefaced Killer. He and his men then gunned down the truck drivers point blank, set fire to their trucks. Some of his other attacks include kidnapping 16 police officers, executing 12 of them, and injuring four others. So what, what led to this incident, the connection between him and this, in May 2016, which was right before this shooting, right. a U.S.-led coalition airstrike killed Abu Wahib. And this is basically what the shooter was referencing in his He kept his repeating phone calls. this point yeah. over and over again, that he's doing this because of these airstrikes that the U.S. is doing. Yep. And specific, specifically, mm-hmm. they named, he named Abu Wahib in those phone calls. At one point, police dispatch didn't even think the caller was a shooter since it sounded like they were in an isolated area and they kept rambling on. But the caller then threatened them saying that he had enough explosives in the parking lot that could blow up several blocks. Meanwhile, victims had scrambled outside. Others escaped through a hole where officers had removed an AC unit and some were trying to treat their wounds before police and paramedics could get to them. Here's some witness testimony from a man named Christopher Hansen talking about how he and some of the others escaped. I didn't see any of the actual shooters. Um, I just saw bodies going down. And, um, I was ordering the drink at the bar. I fell down. I crawled out. Um, people were trying to escape out the back. I believe the privacy fence may have been knocked down. Um, I just know that when I hit the ground, I was crawling. And um, I hit my elbows and my knees. And then when I got across the street, there was people who were just blood, blood everywhere. Um, I was helping somebody because he was laying down. I wasn't sure if he was dead or alive. And I was like, hey, are you alive? Hey, are you okay? He didn't speak English, but the person next to us who was helping us spoke, I don't know if it was Portuguese, but was able to get his name. He was went by Junior. I took my bandana off and put it in a knot and I shoved it in his hole, um, the bullet hole that was in his back because it didn't go through. It stayed in. Uh, then the second person I helped, she got hit in the arm. And uh, her name is Carlisha. Um, and she came from Ohio as well because I just moved here from Ohio. So moving here, this is my first nightclub, being out, being here two months, and this is the experience. I didn't even know it was Latin night. I didn't understand the music, but I still danced. I'm, I'm still wet. I don't know if it's sweat, but I just know that it's under my nails still a little bit. And I just, it was tragic. Once paramedics arrived, they took as many people as they could to the nearby Orlando Regional Medical Center that was only a few blocks away from Pulse. And within minutes, 
the hospital staff would be overwhelmed by dozens of patients with barely enough resources to keep everything under control. I actually have a clip I'm going to show you from the chief surgeon talking about that night. I have 20 gunshot wounds coming. I need you now. To receive 36 victims in 36 minutes, um, there are probably very few hospitals in the U.S. that have experienced that many casualties all at one time. You know, at one point, there was a thought that there was actually gunfire in the emergency room. What, what was heard was actually gunfire from the scene, but it echoed and it made it sound like it was in the hospital. Number one is you have to focus on the families and the friends. While some of the victims were being treated, the shooter was still holed up in the bathroom inside of Pulse nightclub. At the time, police believed there were still at least 15 hostages barricaded inside the bathrooms as well. Meanwhile, the shooter tried to find websites and videos to learn how to unjam the shell casing from his rifle. His goal, of course, was to cause as much damage and mayhem as possible. So getting his rifle unjammed was his only hope. And luckily, he never figured out how. Knowing his weapons were his pistol and his threats, he stayed in the bathroom for hours, threatening the hostages, trying to fix his weapon, and making rambling calls to 911 dispatch. Beyond the bathroom area, police quickly tried to escort everyone else out of the club. One of these officers was Eatonville police officer Omar Delgado, and he had noticed the 26-year-old fitness instructor Angel Cohen among the dead victims. Even though he had been shot multiple times, the officer could tell that Angel was still alive, so he dragged him out of the nightclub just in time to save his life. If Angel had bled out any longer, he wouldn't have made it. And after surgery in the ER and months of physical therapy, Angel would one day walk on his own again, and he said he owes all of that to Officer Omar Delgado. Outside, as the hours passed, Police Chief John Mina finally made the decision to breach the club. The police's plan was to use a SWAT team and controlled explosives to blast open the exterior walls and make an opening into the south bathroom. Officials rarely make the call to use explosives in tactical breaches, and there are several reasons for that. One, fires, two, structural damage, and three, probably most importantly, is injury to anyone nearby right. who is uh, either an innocent bystander or their own men. The goal is to use as few explosives as possible to have a large enough breach in the wall. In this case, the officers who were outside had, had a less chance of being injured because the explosion can dissipate, but they were somewhat worried on injuring or possibly killing the hostages that were inside. Yeah. You don't want it to be like defeat the purpose of doing it. Right. Like, right. so it's, it's a very, I mean, it's like, how do you even know what's going to happen when you're setting off explosives? Exactly. Right? Yeah. So the, the, I guess the point you're trying to make is like, they didn't want to overdo it. Yep. And which might ensure that the wall opens up, but in the process you kill all your hostages and, there was no point in doing that at exactly. all. Exactly. That's why they usually make this a last resort for for uh, releasing hostages. And what we'll see later is also the accuracy of where you're actually blowing into in the building is also very difficult to pinpoint. Usually in the in cases like these, the urgency of the situation makes the decision clearer for using explosives to breach. Obviously. Three hours had passed by now, so urgency wasn't really a factor in this. But in the end, they tried to make a sizable hole, and their goal was to reach the south bathroom where they believed the shooter was. 
and they wanted to try and subdue the shooter and save as many hostages as possible with minimal casualties. Because at this point, too, they're still getting reports that he has a vest, potentially an explosive vest, or he's potentially putting an explosive vest on some of the uh, the hostages there. So it's like time is seemingly running out and they don't know if he's going to blow the whole building. He doesn't know. They don't really know what's going to happen. But I think what's interesting, too, is that police officers in this case, even when they found out that he was potentially wearing an explosive vest, they didn't back off yeah. from the building. They, they all held their positions and, and they were, you know, everybody was sort of accepting the threat that could have been there of this guy might blow the building and, you know, we will get blown up in the process. But at this point, we're going to, we're going to just hold our ground. And I think also depending on the conversations that were had with the negotiators and things like that, I think they were starting to kind of understand that he most likely didn't based on what they were hearing from him. Cause he said, I mean, you know, as you, you'll, you'll hear is, you know, I just, he doesn't sound super confident about what he's doing. And, right. and obviously they're starting to get a lot more information from those in the bathroom and kind of being told what they're seeing and what he's saying and things like that. So I think there is a calculated decision there on, we're going to go ahead and do this because we don't think he necessarily has an explosive vest and is actually going to be able to blow up. Yeah. Cause yep. again, at the beginning he said there was, he had bombs that could blow up the whole city block, but yep. obviously they went and looked and everything, but there was no evidence that that was the case. Yeah. And we know that a lot of the hostages had their cell phones still inside. And even though he had a very strict policy, you know, no cell phones, if I see you with the cell phone, et cetera, but the police were getting trickles of information through text messages and and nine one one phone calls whenever they could, you know, because he was going back and forth through bathrooms. So some of the hostages in the other bathroom where he wasn't found while time he was gone to, would be, yeah. Which I mean, that's that's just so brave in itself. Yeah, in this kind of situation, to know that if you get caught with your phone, you're likely going to be killed. Right. To still try to give information, obviously, you'd want to get a hold of your loved ones and things like that. So I uh, just can't even imagine being in this scenario. I mean, this is definitely one of the scariest situations you could ever find yourself in. And, uh, you know, I've had like, after some of these events happen, I've had dreams of being in similar situations where there's a shooter and things like that. And just, those are always some of the worst nightmares that I have. I just can't even imagine people living through this in real life and, yeah, it's yeah. absolutely. It's worst case scenario here. Yeah, it really is. And I think they were very lucky. Everyone, police and the victims were very lucky that the rifle was jammed during all yeah, of this. Right. I mean, you can just do so much more damage with those, those uh, assault rifles. Yeah. Around 5 a.m. The SWAT team made their move. They detonated the explosives on the exterior wall, but since they used minimal explosives for safety reasons, the initial hole wasn't that large. So they sent someone to drive the Bearcat armed vehicle to lightly ram the wall so the hole would open up. They eventually got it to a four foot tall, three foot wide hole. The problem was is that they realized that they didn't open a hole into the south bathroom like they had planned. They realized the hole was in the small hallway between the two bathrooms. Plus, they hadn't realized that the shooter was actually in the north bathroom. They moved a few feet down and then successfully opened a hole into the south bathroom. Once opened to a large enough size, they were able to rescue a few hostages in the south bathroom, and then they realized that the shooter was in the north bathroom. 
At 5.13 a.m., the shooter walked to one of the stalls and fired four to five rounds from his pistol. According to police, the people he shot were already dead on the floor. After hearing the shots, police threw an M84 stun grenade through one of the breach holes toward the north bathroom. Stun grenades, or flash bangs, give off an extremely loud bang, somewhere around 175 decibels. To put that into perspective, 175 decibels, the loudest thing ever recorded on Earth was Krakatoa, and it was 310 decibels. So that is more than half of the loudest sound ever recorded on Earth. It also releases a blinding flash of more than 1 million candelas, which is an incredible intensity of light. I think I read somewhere it can flash over a mile. Obviously, these are more contained. They're meant to just flash in a small area. Right. But you can flash 1 million candelas over a mile. These flashbangs end up causing flash blindness, deafness, tinnitus, which is the high-pitched ringing in your ear. And they also affect the inner ear fluid, which can cause a loss of coordination and confusion. So it literally stuns you, stops you in your track. Yeah, it's meant to just completely disorient you. Because the goal is to try to get those as close to your target as possible. Right. So it's going off right next to them. Just In this case, they didn't know exactly where he was. So they're like, we know he's in the north bathroom, so we can just kind of huck one towards there. They figured even if they didn't hit him, it's a non-lethal weapon. So even if there are civilians they would still be okay and it might be able to lure him out towards the breaching hole. So right. that was kind of if the If he point. starts like aimlessly wandering after it goes off, then right. maybe he wanders right in. It's like, well, why not set that off like three hours earlier from inside? Yeah. I it's like, know. why did it take so long to throw a stun grenade in there? It seems like that'd be a great thing to do straight off the bat. Like it once you know, I guess again, there's a lot of reports on where he was. I think a lot of it's just confusion about where in the club he was and what bathroom he was in. Cause I mean, you just start throwing them and stuff. Then you could also disorient your own officers, put them in danger as well. Right. And so if, it's difficult. If, if he wasn't bluffing, if he actually had explosives, did he have a trigger? True. Did he have a dead man switch? You know, there's kind of a lot of, if you do that, is that going to then set him off? Right. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Soon after the flashbang went off, the shooter walked over to the hole in the hallway between the bathrooms. Then he aimed his pistol out of the hole and fired off a few more rounds. Several loud bangs and muzzle flashes came from the breach. One of the bullets hit an officer in the helmet, but thankfully he survived. Another hit a survivor's right leg as they were running out of the hole from the south bathroom, but they also survived. Police aimed their attention back to the breach, where the shots rang out. They noticed the flashbang had created smoke near the hole, so it was hard to see the shooter. But once they saw the muzzle flash from the shooter's handgun, 13 officers opened fire. Aiming toward the muzzle flash, they shot a minimum of 172 times. And some of the footage I saw is just, it's crazy to hear all the gunshots going off. I mean, it literally sounds like a scene from a war film or just a real scene from war. It's crazy. Bullets flew into the hallway and chunks of exterior brick flew off the walls. According to police, they did not hit any civilian hostages. The few that had survived were hunkered down in the stalls in the north bathroom while bullets flew in toward the hallway. Under the hail of bullets, the shooter was hit seven times. Pink mists of blood from his wound shot up into the air as he fell backward into the hallway. Police kept firing off rounds towards the breach, desperately hoping they had finally killed the shooter. 
After the gun smoke cleared and there was no sign of the shooter at the breach, police approached the opening in the wall and looked down into the small hallway. And that's where they saw the shooter lying on his back. Dead. One officer saw what looked like a device close to the shooter's chest. It looked like wires extended out from a small device that looked like explosives. They also noticed his handgun was only a few inches out of his grasp. So one officer aimed his gun and fired one more bullet into the shooter. After this, he was soon pronounced dead at the scene. Even with all of those bullets being shot, when an investigation was concluded, there were no casualties as a result of friendly fire, which was some welcome good news. By the time the sun rose, family and friends were frantically looking for their loved ones, hoping they weren't the victims who had lost their lives. As the media interviewers arrived, they documented the scene of mayhem and sadness. I'm going to play you a clip of Christine Leinenen, who was a mother who had come to the nightclub looking for her son, but couldn't find him. I I understand your son uh, was in the club last night? Yes, he was. Have you heard anything? I haven't heard anything. I've been here since 4 o'clock in the morning. I've been waiting. I've been waiting by the emergency room to see if anybody gets called in. What, what is your son's full name? My son is Christopher Leinenen. Christopher Leinenen. When? what have the police been able to tell you? Well, they said there's a lot of dead bodies at the club. <laughs> That's a crime scene. They can't identify anybody. So it could be hours and hours before we find out. The hospital said that there are some bodies at the hospital that came in and they died. And they're not identifiable yet either. And then there are a few that are in critical condition that aren't identified yet. Christine, I, I, I am so sorry. Were, were, were you able to have any kind of communication with your son last night at all? Any text messages, any phone calls? No, I called him last night at 6 o'clock. He was at SeaWorld, and I was just giving him some information that he was going to need to know for my upcoming surgery. And I left him with, I love you, Chris. Christine would later discover that her son, Christopher, who also went by Drew, and his boyfriend, Juan Guerrero, had died that night. Drew was born in Detroit and he had later earned a bachelor's and master's degrees in psychology at the University of Central Florida, and then he found a job as a licensed mental health counselor. In high school, he had started a gay-straight alliance, and just before his death, he won the Anne Frank Humanitarian Award for his work in the gay community. He was one of the many activists who lost their lives that day, and as police counted the victims, 49 people had been killed. After the dust settled in the early morning hours of June 12th, police identified the shooter. He was a 29-year-old named Omar Mateen. And nobody knows what dark secrets died along with him. 
But as FBI investigators looked into his past, they uncovered a long history of anger, violence, and radical Islamic inspiration. So Omar, Mir, Sadiq, Mateen was born November 16, 1986 in New Hyde Park, New York. His father, Mir Sadiq Mateen, immigrated from Afghanistan in the 1980s. He raised his son Omar in New York for several years until they moved to Port St. Lucie, Florida in 1991. The family was described as moderate Muslims in an all-American family, but behind closed doors, Omar's true nature was hidden. Even from an early age, he was prone to violence. While at Mariposa Elementary School, his third grade teacher once wrote that Omar was, quote, very active, constantly moving, verbally abusive, rude, aggressive, much talk about violence and sex, hands all over the place, on other children, and in his mouth. By seventh grade, not much had changed. He was even forced to move to a different class so that he could avoid confrontation with other students. School faculty noticed that he had behavioral problems, and he failed to get good grades. One of his classmates once said that he was a bully and disrespectful to girls, and he acted like he was better than everyone. Another classmate said that Omar suffered from bullying at school because of his weight and his Afghan heritage. Whenever these issues were brought up with his parents, they dismissed the problems with their son. They even noticed that Omar's father was disrespectful to the female teachers. While Omar was in eighth grade in 1999, his teacher sent a letter directly to his father. The letter said that Omar had an attitude problem and he showed no signs of self-control, but still his parents ignored the issues. In 2000, Omar went to Martin County High School. His former dean, Dan Alley, later said that they tried to counsel him and show him the error of his ways, but it never had the effect that they were hoping for. He also said that his father would always take his son's side and never agree with the school faculty. When Omar was 14, he was expelled for assaulting another student during math class, and when the police arrived, they arrested Omar and charged him with battery and disrupting school, but the charges were later dropped. By his sophomore year, he attended Spectrum, an alternative high school for students with behavioral problems. At the beginning of the school year, the September 11th attacks happened, and when the news made it to their classroom, Omar cheered at his desk. He then began spreading rumors that Osama bin Laden was his uncle, who had taught him how to shoot AK-47s. And this was before it was even announced that the U.S. government believed Osama bin Laden was behind the attacks. As a result of this outburst, he was suspended for five days. And when his father came to pick him up, he slapped Omar across the face in front of other students. This made some of the students wonder what Omar's home life was actually like. If his father had the confidence to smack his son in public, what else had he done behind closed doors? After his suspension was over, Omar returned to school, but still his behavior hadn't changed. He'd get on the school bus and shock the other students by imitating exploding planes crashing into buildings. After getting into another fight with a student, he was soon transferred to St. Lucie West Centennial High School. And then he was transferred again to Martin County's Stewart Adult Vocational School, where he finally graduated in 2003. By the time he completed high school, he had been expelled once and suspended for 48 days in total. The incidents always involved injuring and fighting other students. Even with all the issues with violence and remarks about terrorist attacks, Omar went on to attend Indian River State College's criminal justice training program. During the program, he filled out a questionnaire and admitted to committing a crime he was never caught by police. 
He never explained the details of what this crime was. But he later earned an associate of science degree in criminal justice technology from the same college in 2006. After graduation in October 2006, he found a job working as a recruit for the Florida Department of Corrections and was assigned to Martin Correctional Institution. In his application, he mentioned he was arrested when he was 14 for assaulting a classmate, and he also admitted to smoking weed when he was a teenager. During a corrections officer training course in April 2007, Omar suggested he would bring a gun to the course. But the Virginia Tech shooting had just happened earlier that month. So the warden, P.H. Skipper, wrote in the letter that, quote, In the light of the tragic events at Virginia Tech, Officer Mateen's inquiry about bringing a weapon to class is at best extremely disturbing. Omar was then dismissed from the program a few days later. He never became a certified corrections officer, and instead he found a job working for a British-based security firm, G4S Secure Solutions in Jupiter, Florida, in September of 2007. He worked security here until his death nine years later. He passed two screenings with flying colors during his employment, but still he was removed from his post at a courthouse for threatening a coworker. In a heated outburst, he told a deputy that Al-Qaeda would kill his entire family. In his defense, he later claimed that his coworkers were making racist comments toward him, but despite his problems, he kept his job. They then moved him to a kiosk at a gated community in Palm Beach County. The community and property management were never informed of why he was moved there. The security company was hoping to move on from the issue. But his violent outbursts were nothing new. All the while, he had a concealed weapons permit and an armed security guard license. Through his family, Omar knew a psychologist, Dr. Saeed Shafiq Rahman. Through him, Omar took a multiple-choice psychological exam and passed, so the doctor gave him medical clearance. Plus, Omar had no adult criminal record. Most of his history of violence on paper was from his teen years, and he was never convicted of a violent crime. So no red flags could be seen when he was getting his permit and license. And when he got his armed security guard license, records show that he was in the 98th percentile with a 9mm pistol, meaning that he could shoot extremely well. In 2010, he went on to work security for a site related to the BP oil spill, and he was actually featured in a 2012 documentary. Morning. Morning. Do you have a badge? No, I'm actually just wondering what's going on here. Oh, it's for a BP, like the oil spill. Is there any way that I could talk to any of the people that are out there working? Like, uh, there's people out here, but they're all scattered all over the place. There's no one really to talk to, like any, like, supervisor. No one gives a shit. No one gives a shit here. Like, everybody just gets out to get paid. They're, like, hoping for more oil to come out and more people to complain so they'll have the jobs. Because once people get laid off here, it's going to suck for them. They want more disaster to happen because that's where their money making is. Yeah. It's all about the money, right? All about the money. Exactly. That's really chilling to see, honestly. Yeah, you can kind of tell from early on that he's so fired up. Yeah. It's such a weird thing for a security officer to be saying to somebody at like a checkpoint like that. Basically like trashing yeah. where he's working. and Normally it's just like, oh, they're out there, but... I can't let you pass. Right. That's Have the extent nice of the conversation. Yeah. But no, he's like, he's going ready. along with everything she's saying. He wants to give his two cents about how this whole thing is like, yeah, they, they love destruction. They make money on it. He has like a, yeah, a lot of yeah, hard opinions. On definitely. It, right? He's definitely got this attitude, you know, towards 
Yeah, the company, I guess. Yeah. So the year before that documentary was filmed in 2009, Omar married his wife, Satora Yosefi, and they had met through MySpace just the year before. But quickly after their marriage, she could see how unstable Omar truly was. She noticed moments when they would go from laughing and joking, and then the next minute he would be filled with rage, and sometimes his body would shake with anger. During his outbursts, Omar would sometimes hold her hostage and physically and verbally abuse her. She also claimed that he was bipolar and abused steroids. Omar's second wife shared similar experiences. Her name was Noor Salman, and she had grown up in Rodeo, California, and her parents were Muslim Palestinian Arab immigrants. She met Omar on an online dating service in 2011, and they married shortly after. In November 2012, they moved in together at Omar's house in Fort Pierce, Florida. Within six months of their marriage, Omar was verbally and physically abusive towards her. In September 2013, they lived with Omar's father and another relative in Port St. Lucie. And by December 2015, she finally had the strength to leave him after years of abuse. She moved in with her relatives back in Rodeo, California. But she left her son with Omar, and she would come back to visit him over the months. His first wife, Satora, had seen the anger and violence that he was capable of, but she never once thought that he was capable of a mass shooting. She thought his anger and violence was only directed at her. So with the help of her father, she ended the marriage a few months after their wedding. According to her, she saw no sign of radical Islamic opinions during their marriage. But she did notice his rampant homophobia. In moments when he got angry about something, he would continuously make homophobic comments. He would go on and on about how he didn't accept them, to the point where he seemed obsessed. She thought there was something more going on, to the point where she thought Omar might have been gay or bisexual. He clearly had strong opinions on sexuality, and he had admitted to her that he went out to gay clubs. After the shooting, his ex-wife's fiancé, Marco Diaz, said Omar had gay tendencies. And Satora later claimed she was told by the FBI not to mention Omar's sexuality to the American media. Which this ended up sparking a debate on Omar's sexuality, and if it had anything to do with the motives behind the shooting. Apparently his ex-wife wasn't the first person close to him that thought he was gay. An unnamed male friend from his police academy in 2006 said that Omar had often gone to gay bars with him. And once Omar told him he wanted to date him. After the shooting, five of the regular customers at Pulse said that they had seen Omar there at least a dozen times. Sometimes Omar sat in the corner and drank by himself. Other times he got so drunk he would scream and become belligerent until getting escorted out by security. Another witness told investigators that Omar had been messaging him on a gay dating app called Jacked. Another witness claimed Omar used Grinder and the Adam for Adam website and that he had posted pictures of himself on both. A third witness claimed that Omar constantly tried to pick up men from the nightclub. But dozens of others, including a spokesperson of the owner, said that Omar had never been to the club before. Plus, a former high school friend and coworker of Omar said that he had no issues with his openly gay coworkers at Treasure Coast Square, a shopping mall at Jensen Beach. His father also denied that Omar was gay, saying, quote, If he was gay, why would he do something like this? Here's a clip of Omar Mateen's father. This is, I, I am as shocked as you are. I don't approve this. In the United States, anyone has the freedom and the choice to handle his life, what he likes, how to run his life. And nobody has the right to do anything or impose anything. So I don't approve of him. 
what he did. Did you know that he had purchased these weapons? No, I wish I did know. I wish I did know. If I, if, if I did know that he purchased the weapon, this would not have happened. So Two o'clock, he became another person. Did he ever talk about homosexuality? Uh, except one time that we were in Miami, we saw the behavior of two, uh, one couple, and he got a little bit ticked off. His father later admitted homophobia might have been a motive, but even Omar's ex-wife noticed Omar's father would call him gay in front of his family. Following the shooting, Omar's father posted an online video speaking in his native language, Dali. He said, quote, In this month of Ramadan, the gay and lesbian issue is something that God will punish. After the outrage from the public, he later took back what he said. When the FBI looked into Omar's sexuality, they were skeptical. Federal officials said they had no evidence to back up if he was gay or not. Rumors from a man who was supposedly Omar's lover for two months began to spread. The unnamed man said that Omar had committed the shooting because he had been exposed to HIV after having sex with a Puerto Rican man. So the theory was that the mass shooting was revenge against Latino men. But Omar's autopsy revealed that he was HIV negative. Also, an in-depth investigation revealed that there was no evidence that Omar used gay dating apps, like some other witnesses claimed. After 500 interviews and rifling through Omar's web searches, emails, and other data, they still found no evidence that Omar was gay. The only evidence they did find was that Omar had cheated on his wife at one point. As for his sexuality being a motive, Attorney General Loretta Lynch went on record as saying, quote, I do not want to definitely rule out any particular motivation here. It's entirely possible that he had a dual motive. But after the investigation, the FBI believed that the evidence didn't support the claims that Omar was gay. As for the motives they could prove, everything seemed to point toward Omar's history of hatred, violence, and obsession with terrorist groups. His father was quick to say that the shooting had nothing to do with his son's religion. A man named Imam Shafiq Rahman from the Fort Pierce Islamic Center said that Omar would come to the mosque three or four times a week with his father and his three-year-old son from his second marriage. The last time he saw Omar at the mosque was two days before the shooting, and he released a video of Omar on June 8th that showed him quietly praying for 10 minutes. He then left the mosque without speaking to anyone. Supposedly, he was mostly quiet while at the mosque. He would pray and then leave. There was no indication of violence at all and Omar had never preached violence towards homosexuals. As for Omar's old co-workers, they had much different experiences with him. When he worked security, one of those co-workers described him as unhinged and unstable. He would constantly go on homophobic rants while also making racist and sexist comments. The co-worker said, He had a lot of hatred for people, black people, women. He did not like the Jews, and he did not like Hispanics, nor did he like gay or lesbian people. Omar even openly talked about killing people in front of the other employees. The co-workers complained several times to G4S, the security company that he worked for, but they only changed locations where he worked security. One of the residents also said that Omar would act like a straight-up predator. The FBI even investigated Omar back in 2013 when he told co-workers he had ties to the Fort Hood shooter and the Boston Marathon bombers. He also threatened his coworkers, saying his family had links to Al-Qaeda and that he had joined Hezbollah. So without opening this can of worms too much, I think we do need to give some context into what and who some of these terrorist organization groups are just to understand what Omar is actually talking about. So Al-Qaeda, which I'm sure a lot of us Americans have heard about, 
Um, it's a militant Islamic organization found by Osama bin Laden in the 1980s. At first, it was a network to fight against the Soviet Union during the Afghan war. When the Soviets finally withdrew in 1989, the organization stuck together and they continued to oppose what they thought were corrupt Islamic regimes and foreign presence, especially uh, countries like the U.S. Over time, members were recruited from all over the world and they later declared a holy war on the U.S. without getting too much into it because this is a yeah, it's a whole nother. This is huge. I'm sure you can go find plenty of other podcasts who do in-depth multi-episode uh, yeah. stretches on Al-Qaeda. But basically, this more or less led to the invasion of Afghanistan. This war officially ended in 2014, but U.S. troops remain in Afghanistan until 2021. During this time, which I'm, I mean, I'm sure you remember, we both grew up during this time in the U.S., um, this built up a lot of tension and discrimination towards Muslims, especially after 9-11, you know? Yeah, I remember absolutely. those days. So as for Hezbollah, which Omar also mentioned, this is a Shiite Muslim political party and militant group based in Lebanon. It was founded during the chaotic 15-year Lebanese civil war, and this group has a history of carrying out global terrorist attacks and was later deemed a terrorist organization by the U.S. and many other countries. Supposedly, this group considers the U.S. their greatest enemy, and some consider this group to be the most powerful non-state actor in the world with a military roughly the size of the Lebanese army. Now, here's the confusing part. Hezbollah and ISIL see each other as enemies, and even though ISIL grew out of Al-Qaeda, in 2014, Al-Qaeda later denounced what would become ISIL because when a lot of Al Qaeda leaders had to flee into the mountains after the 9-11 attacks, some were still on the outside. The group, this is a brief summary, but the group eventually had different goals and Al Qaeda would later denounce what would become ISIL in that time. And this is what would become the Islamic state of Iraq and the Levant which is a large geographical area known as the Northwest of the Arabian plate is basically a way to say that this is bigger than just Iraq can include a lot of other countries. So both of the terrorist groups that Omar had mentioned were actually enemies of ISIL. So he mentions uh, Al Qaeda and Hezbollah, right? And that when he's working security, but they're both enemies of ISIL. And he pledged allegiance to ISIL during the shootings. That's the confusing part where it's like, does this guy even know what he's saying or what right, he's talking about? Right. It sounds like he's kind of just dumping all these Islamic extremist groups into just one pool. Like name dropping almost yeah. just to make it sound, to confuse people and make them think that he's really, you know, pledged this allegiance. But in reality, if you actually know this dynamic, seems very unlikely that he actually was involved in any of these groups. Yeah. You wouldn't be out there public. If you were actually a part of ISIL, you wouldn't be saying also Al Qaeda and yeah. you know, all these other groups too. Especially to your coworkers sense. and stuff. Right, right. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's like he knew he was using it to just get a rise out of people. He knows yeah. that people don't want to hear those, those names. So he's right. just putting them out there. Especially during that time. Right. Yeah. So when the FBI interviewed Omar, 
He said he had previously said those things in anger because his coworkers were teasing him about his ethnicity and being a Muslim extremist, which I can understand that to some degree. You know, people start teasing you for something about you, you double down on it. But in this case, this is clearly a completely different situation here. But yeah, that was his excuse. Hmm. So during FBI interviews with Omar, he said he was 1,000% American against any anti-American and anti-humanity terrorist organizations. But again, in July 2014, he came up on the FBI's radar again. They actually linked Omar to a suicide bomber, a 22-year-old named Moner Muhammad Abu Salah. And supposedly, both he and Omar had gone to the same mosque. He was an American that had posted videos of him burning his American passport and expressing his desire to die. For the rebel terrorist front in Syria. In 2012, he had gone to Syria for quote-unquote training. The next year, he returned to Florida where he tried to recruit some of his friends for Syria's violent revolution but failed. In 2014, he returned to Syria. And while there, he drove a truck bomb into a restaurant filled with Syrian government soldiers, killing himself and several troops. After they had opened up an FBI investigation, they focused mainly on Abu rather than Omar. While the investigation was ongoing, Omar was placed on a terrorist watch list. They interviewed him a total of two times during the investigations. They also followed him with unmarked vehicles, examined his phone records, and used two informants to secretly record face-to-face conversations. But after a 10-month investigation, a veteran FBI agent and his supervisor closed the case. They believed Omar was not a threat, and his name was actually removed from the terrorist watch list. The supervisor claimed there's just nothing there. If Omar had stayed on the watch list, the FBI would have been notified if he had tried to purchase any firearms. But since he was taken off the list, no alarm bells went off. After the shooting, they still found no evidence of Omar being part of any sort of terrorist group through social media. And supposedly, the only radical things he said were within 24 hours before the shooting. Even after the dust settled, officials and the media were still confused as to who or what organization Omar was actually loyal to. According to the Department of Homeland Security, Omar had pledged allegiance to ISIL during the attacks. They believe the group might have inspired him even without training, instruction, or direct contact. Media investigators said that, quote, at this point, it's anyone's guess as to how involved Omar Mateen was with either Al-Qaeda or ISIL. The director of the CIA later told the Senate Intelligence Committee that there was no link between Omar and ISIL. They'd even looked into places he visited and found nothing. Omar had visited Saudi Arabia for eight days in 2011 and 10 days in 2012. The second trip was organized by the Islamic Center of NYU. Twelve NYPD officers had also attended the trip. Around the same time, Omar also visited the United Arab Emirates. The FBI even searched Omar's property for any reasons for the trips but came up with nothing. After the shooting, they searched Omar's computers and discovered he had been watching extremist videos like beheadings and terrorist attacks, and he had also looked up info on the Islamic State. His second wife, Noor, also confirmed that he had often watched jihadist videos on his computer, but she had ignored it. She claimed that since the FBI had cleared him before, it wasn't a problem. But people began to question what Noor's involvement was in all of this. Her neighbor across the street where she grew up said that Noor was an extremist. Her mother was strict and never let her, quote, mix with other cultures. But he never noticed anything off about Noor. Once she went and lived with Omar, many of the other neighbors didn't know she even existed. They would see Omar and their son outside, but Noor was always inside the house or at home, 
and Rodeo with her family. No one truly knows the nature of their marriage, but they separated soon after, and Omar's radicalization only got worse. One of the hostages inside the Pulse bathroom said that they heard Omar pledging allegiance to ISIL and telling the U.S. to stop bombing, quote, his country. By the next day, June 13th, the Iraqi ISIL radio station, Al-Bayan, said that Omar was, quote, one of the soldiers of the caliphate in America. But again, there was no evidence that ISIL knew about the shooting before it happened. Omar's opinions and comments on radical terrorist groups might have been inconsistent or confusing before the massacre, but many believe these views led Omar to commit the shooting, or they are at least his justification for doing it. By mid-July 2016, law enforcement officials and the FBI claimed that they had not found any evidence that Omar targeted Pulse because it was a gay venue. They claimed there was no evidence that the attack was motivated by homophobia. And according to witnesses, he did not make any homophobic comments during the shooting. An official also said, A complete picture of what motivated Mateen remains murky and may never be known since he was killed in the shootout with police, and he did not leave a manifesto. As of 2018, the FBI case was no longer investigating the shooting, but the case officially remained open. Even though we might never understand Omar's detailed motivation, it was clear long before the attacks that something was clearly wrong. During the months just before the shooting, Omar's behavior made it even more obvious that he was going to do something drastic, but the FBI and law enforcement had no idea. Just two months before the Pulse nightclub shooting, he transferred his share of a Port St. Lucie house into his sister and brother-in-law's name. He only made $10 off the transaction. And two weeks before the shooting, Omar legally purchased a 6-hour MCX semi-automatic rifle and a 9mm Glock 17 handgun in a Port St. Lucie gun shop. He also asked the clerk if he could buy body armor, but they didn't sell it. So he went to another gun shop in town and tried to buy body armor and 1,000 rounds of bulk ammunition. But the workers became suspicious, so they refused to sell the items. A salesman later claimed that he contacted the FBI and reported Omar. But the FBI said that they had no record of the report. The local sheriff also claimed they were unaware. Then just 12 days before the shooting, Omar and his wife Noor and son went to Disney World. Even though they had separated, they still spent time together. And just days before the shooting, they spent an absurd amount of money on food, jewelry, and toys for their son. Between June 1st and June 6th, he had gone to Disney Springs with Noor. There was known to be less security at Disney Springs compared to the theme parks. Here's actually a, a clip that the news ran of some surveillance footage of Omar. As Salman and her son were in a store, cameras captured Mateen walking around outside by himself. At 1029 that night, a receipt shows the family ate dinner at King O'Falafel Restaurant in Kissimmee. It was after this meal when Salman told the FBI that she and Mateen drove around the Pulse nightclub for about 20 minutes. But FBI agents now admit that would have been practically impossible since Mateen visited a mosque in Kissimmee about 45 minutes after buying dinner. There was not enough time for the couple to make the round trip, calling into question the reliability of Salman's statement. June 9th. Mateen goes to a gun range and practices firing the rifle he would use three days later to murder clubgoers at Pulse. June 11th, less than four hours before the attack, Mateen is seen wandering around Disney Springs. Cameras reveal there is a large presence of Orange County Sheriff's deputies. 
Cell phone data indicates Mateen then drives up I-4 towards downtown, hanging out around Eve Orlando nightclub. Around 1.30 in the morning, Mateen heads down to Pulse nightclub, where he would open fire just a half hour later. Noor later said, I drove him to the gay nightclub Pulse because he wanted to scope it out. Investigators later believe that Noor knew about the planned shooting. At first, they didn't charge her since they didn't have enough evidence. She even drove him to a store to buy ammunition just days before the shooting. And according to her, on the day before the massacre, she warned him against anything he might have been planning. She later denied she knew anything specific. Noor was later arrested on January 16, 2017 in Rodeo, California. They charged her with aiding and abetting as well as obstruction of justice. When she arrived in court a day later, she pled not guilty. She then spent a year in jail during the trial separated from her son. When the trial ended, she was found not guilty on all counts. But most of the focus still stayed on Omar. Just hours before the shooting, Omar went to his parents' house to visit his father. His father claimed he didn't notice anything was off about him. That same day, he gave Nora $1,000 to take a trip back to Rodeo to see her family. He also booted up his computer and searched shooting and Pulse Orlando. Then he went to Facebook and posted, quote, America and Russia stopped bombing the Islamic State. He then pledged his allegiance to the dictator of the Islamic State and said, quote, May Allah accept me. In another post soon after, he wrote, The real Muslims will never accept the filthy ways of the West, and you kill innocent women and children by doing U.S. airstrikes. Now taste the Islamic State vengeance. In his last post, he wrote, In the next few days, you will see attacks from the Islamic State in the USA. These posts were later deleted, but then uncovered by the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. Omar then used Facebook to search for info on the San Bernardino Terrace and for locations of local law enforcement offices. Later that evening, Omar strapped on his gear, ammo, rifle, and handgun, and then headed to the Pulse nightclub. And there he committed one of the worst mass shootings the U.S. has ever seen and the worst act of violence against the LGBTQ plus community. After the massacre at Pulse nightclub, businesses across the U.S. began reevaluating their security systems. Shopping malls, bars, theaters, concert venues, and any place where large groups of people gather were all places mass shooters could target. Police forces across the country also planned to increase security at LGBTQ plus landmarks, especially festivals or Pride Month events. Some officers, like Deputy Chief James Young, were proud of what they accomplished that night. Here's what he had to say. I said it's the longest shift of my life. Um, and when I say the longest shift of my life, I think that it hasn't ended to this day. As he was one of the first to respond on scene. Just knowing that that's my family in there. In the parking lot outside of the club where he says his friends, members of his LGBTQ family, we're inside. Long history with Pulse. Um, I've worked there many times. I've been there personally. Um, you, you start thinking of who might be in there. All with the goal of getting the injured survivors out, many whom he knew. She ran up, hugged me, and, and literally squeezed me and said, Jim, thank God it's you. I feel safe now. Deputy Chief Young on scene from 2 a.m. until 5.30 p.m., coming home only for a shower. Looking at my uniform, I had blood on my pants and blood on my shoes. Immediately leaving again to go to vigils. The night of Pulse, so literally June 12th at like 6.30 p.m. At that time, police resources were stretched very thin, but the community also worried, what if there's a copycat? Just so they would have a police officer there, so when the people there could at least feel safe.
Others began criticizing the police for the three hours it took them to breach the wall into the bathroom area. Even two of the former SWAT officers knew from their training that minimizing casualties meant entering a shooting location as fast as possible, even if it meant putting themselves in harm's way. One of those former SWAT officers was an active shooter tactics expert and trainer, and he later regretted not breaching much sooner. Meanwhile, Omar was able to kill more hostages and make his public allegiance to ISIL. Two months after that in November, Orlando police announced it was upgrading its weapons and equipment, like bulletproof helmets and heavier bulletproof vests, and they said that the officers at the scene of Pulse nightclub were under-equipped at the time. Many victims later sued the local police departments for their delays. Other controversy also surrounded the police. In December of 2017, Eatonville police officer Omar Delgado, the man who saved Angel Cullen's life, was fired from the force. He had suffered from PTSD and he was only six months away from securing his pension bonus for 10 years of service. After the pulse shooting, he was put on desk duty, but a superior officer told him that they needed him on patrol. And since he was still going through counseling for his PTSD, this was a factor in their decision to fire him. Many other firefighters and officers who were at Pulse that night ended up with PTSD, including an off-duty officer who was at the scene when the shooting began. Adam Gruler, who had worked as an officer for 17 years. Doctors diagnosed him with PTSD, and he actually also ended up permanently disabled from an unrelated incident. Alongside the police controversy, the issue of gun control spiked again, and many questioned how a radicalized killer like Omar was able to get a gun in the first place. Three months after the shooting, the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services fined Omar's security company, G4S Secure Solutions, $151,400. Supposedly, they had provided inaccurate psychological testing info on more than 1,500 forms for over 10 years. This allowed potentially dangerous employees to carry firearms like Omar. On top of this, since the FBI took Omar off the terrorist watch list, he was able to obtain weapons and armor without raising any alarms. As for the victims, the FBI's Office of Victim Assistance provided info, services, and resources. Depending on the victim's case, those who are eligible would access special funding assistance, victim compensation, and counseling. First responders at the scene were also offered services and other resources. And three days after the shooting, a victim's assistance center was opened in the Camping World Stadium in Orlando. It operated for eight days and provided help for almost 1,000 people affected by the shooting. After eight days, another assistance center opened, the Orlando United Assistance Center, and they said it would be open for as long as there was a need for it. As for the two hospitals that treated the victims, Orlando Regional Medical Center and Florida Hospital, they later announced that they wouldn't be billing the survivors that were injured that night. And for those who had died, the city offered free funerals and free plots at the Greenwood Cemetery. But even after all the responsibility that was taken and all the help that was provided, there was still controversy. Immediately after the shooting, the local blood donation centers around Florida were flooded with people ready to donate. But many were turned away because the FDA's federal policy stated that men who had sex with other men in the past year could not donate. Even though the shooting had specifically targeted the LGBTQ plus community, many of them, even victims that had survived, went to their blood donation centers, and were turned away. The community, its activists, and Democratic lawmakers urged the FDA to change the policy. But two days after the shooting, on June 14th, the FDA took a hard stance, saying they had no plans to change the regulation. 
they did make a statement that said they would reevaluate the policy when new scientific information becomes available. And basically the reason behind this regulation was a response to the AIDS crisis back in 1985. So the rules were amended over the years. Um, like in 2015, I think they slightly amended it, especially in 2020, they amended it because of COVID. They, there was a blood shortage, um, but it wasn't actually until this year, I think it was in January of this year, almost a decade after the shooting, the FDA finally lifted the ban. Now the regulation evaluates someone's risk of transmitting HIV based on sexual practices instead of just saying, yeah. if you're a man who had sex with right. another man, you're off the list. Because in the case of blood and blood donations, it is sensitive. You want it to be 100% safe. You know, that's that's obviously a huge risk. But they noticed that the verbiage and literally saying that specifically gay men couldn't donate they decided to reword it and now there's x y and z reasons that you can't donate but it no longer targets gay men. right it's not just discriminatory right there's exactly. actually like parameters to measure by versus yeah. being like all gay men can't exactly so today if you're a gay man uh especially ones if you're in a monogamous relationship if you're married you can absolutely go and donate blood yeah that's that's just sad that that was also going on at the same time. Yeah. Outside of government assistance and blood donation, many private fundraising campaigns also began raising money. Their goal is to support the victims and their families. Equality Florida, the state's biggest LGBTQ plus group, raised over $7.5 million from almost 120,000 fundraisers. Disney and NBC Universal donated $1 million each, and their fundraising campaign raised $23 million. They decide to pay out on a rolling basis over time to the victim's families and anyone who has survived the shooting. On September 14th, the city of Orlando announced it would build a fence around the nightclub. It would feature a wraparound commemorative wall with local artwork that would serve as a memorial. In November, the city wanted to buy the building and convert it into a memorial site for $2.25 million. The owner later declined to sell it to the city in December of 2016. But today, the building still acts as a memorial to those that lost their lives. Pictures of victims and artwork wrap around the building. It became a national memorial in June 2021, and it will continue to preserve the legacy of the 49 people who were killed and the 68 who were injured and the countless others who were affected. The One Pulse Foundation, a nonprofit, currently has plans to create a memorial to be a sanctuary of hope and honor. The foundation also provides scholarships to those who share similar dreams, ambitions, and goals as those who lost their lives. Today, it awards 49 scholarships per year up to $10,000. The main goal behind this memorial, foundation, and the local LGBTQ community is to make sure hatred doesn't get the last word. I love that. And they want to make sure that no one ever forgets the victims who suffered so much in a place where they had once found so much love and acceptance. But at the end of the day, it is about the victims. And, you know, I don't want to sit here and try to debate how you know what should have happened and who could have done more i mean obviously it seems like the police could have pushed this more and potentially have gotten to omar a little bit faster and potentially save more lives and at the end of the day i mean a lot of it was just what are you going to do there's just nothing you can do in these circumstances and i think you know when when going through events like this i just think 
you know, so I, I just so many stories of people of how they survived and, you know, how they were saving others. I mean, I know there was, you know, one son who lost his mom because his mom jumped in front of, uh, of the shooter and took a bullet for him. And, and just seeing stories like that is just, you know, in, in the face of such evil and tragedy to hear that, you know, this mother's love for her son, that it was so much that she was willing to die for him is just, there's something that's just so incredible about that and, and moving and, you know, like even in the most evil time, the love, love always wins. I, th- I think that's what I'm trying to say is love conquers all. And even in these types of events, you see time and time again, that the love that humans have for one another and for those in their community is far outweighs the evil that, you know, is there to try to, to take, take that all out. And, and just so many people saved each other, pulled each other out. I, I think that's just absolutely incredible. Cause I think it's hard to understand what you would do in this circumstance. Would you just worry about yourself and get yourself to safety or would you actually go and try to save others? You know, if somebody's injured, you could potentially save their life. Are you going to try to save them? Or are you going to just try to save yourself? And you, what you see is that so many people risk their own lives in order to save the lives of others. And I just think that's so incredible. And those, you know, those are the heroes in, in these, in these events, you know, it's just, it's an unfortunate world that we live in where we have to, you know, this is always looming in the back of our minds and, you know, as parents or as a new parent, I guess, it's just like, it's the one thing that really scares me about raising my child in this world is like, there's nowhere that's safe anymore. School's not safe. Movie theater's not safe. The the local club isn't safe. Like there's always this looming danger that's out there. And obviously with that being said, you don't want to live your life in fear of something happening, right? You got to, you got to just live life and, yeah. and try to put, like you said, try to push it out of your mind and allow yourself to enjoy your life. Cause you don't, you know, if you live in fear, you're never going to do anything. You're just going to you know, lock yourself away and miss out on, on things. So it's hard because it's like, I feel like you got to kind of think of these things and at least mentally sort of prepare yourself. And and what's crazy is a lot of people did, they had this sort of prior knowledge and, and, you know, I was hearing stories of people that were in the bathroom. Like there was like 10 people in a, like in a ball and they had all of their heads into the toilets like down into the toilets to try to protect themselves oh wow and just hearing how many people actually like just play dead and that actually ended up saving their life and i mean obviously some he was going around and shooting bodies on the ground and there were some people that ended up dying as a result of that but it seems in many cases and not just this one that one of the best things you can do in these sort of active shooter scenarios is to play dead and just not move and you might you might survive that way but otherwise it's just trying to you know trying to get away run escape and i wish i really wish the swat team would have went right in and ended it instead of letting it draw out for three hours but again you know the information they had was limited so yeah and i'm i'm usually the first one to to go after police for not Right. You know, going to something, but in this case, I can kind of see just the mass confusion and something like this is so out of the ordinary. Right. It's, it's kind of a, 
I mean, yes, chances are getting higher and higher by the day of things like this happening, but they're so unique. And the fact, I just don't think police had the information of what was really going on inside the building. So I don't know, three hours is an exceptionally long time, but with the information they were given, it's a, uh, it's a tough call. And like you were saying, I, I hope that, I don't know, inside, I think a lot of us think that we would be a hero in this scenario. I don't know if that's always going to be the case, but I guess that's the reality that we live in is just going to be if a situation like this occurs where you're someone caught in a public event like this, then yeah, it is something that maybe you should just have a forethought for what, what would I do? What kind of person would I be in this situation? You know, not everyone has to be a hero, but you know, who are you and what do you do and how do you stay safe and how do you potentially try to save others, you know? Yeah, I think I think the other two things I take away from these events is like if you hear something that sounds like gunshots, it's probably gunshots. And I think that's what's always hard is these these things happen in places that are loud already. There's music and like they thought the DJ was you know, making little sound effects and stuff. So they weren't sure that was actually gunshots going off. And, and so, you know, it's just something to keep in mind. And I think the biggest thing that you can really just take away is like, and just, and this goes for basically all crime really is like, be aware of your surroundings and just, even when you go to big events and things like that, just being aware of who's around you. And if you see something suspicious, report it. Absolutely. That's the thing. Don't, don't, don't stay silent. There's never anything wrong with just, if you see somebody who's acting sketch or looks like they might be up to no good, just report it. Let the police figure it out. Let them go make contact with that individual and, and make sure that nothing is, is, or go tell security or somebody who's in charge of the establishment that, you know, you're feeling a certain type of way because of this individual's actions or what they're saying, especially if they're saying stuff. And I mean, it just goes to show too, like if you're ever around people that are saying threatening things, about wanting to kill people or they're pledging allegiance to a terrorist organization, like report that. Like do not, do not just sit on that because you never know. You just never know what, what people are capable of and where their minds at. And I think for Omar, he's clearly a disturbed individual. He's been this way for a long, long time. He has this history of violence and outbursts and it was just a matter of time before it all sort of got to a boiling point. And and he was set off and I'm not totally convinced that this wasn't, you know, the, the motivate, I'm not convinced by the official motivation behind this. I think there is something, there's a clear reason he went to pulse. Absolutely. And I, I refuse to believe that there, that's not related to why he did this at all. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. The biggest red flag was his first ex-wife. The FBI told her to keep quiet about her, suspicions of him being homosexual and i think that was a huge red flag it was like what potentially is going on here right beneath the surface yeah yeah i mean clearly he was filled with with rage that night and he was hell-bent on causing as much destruction in this this club as possible so i just have a hard time thinking that this is just the random target that he picked yeah i mean there's all these other places that even he was looking at and other venues with lots of people and 
and it was clear he knew where he was going there too. I yeah. mean, it seems pretty clear that despite what the owner says that he may have actually been to that club before yeah. and knew the layout and knew where he was, you know, kind of had a game plan for what he was going to do. His second wife admitted, yeah, she drove him there like yeah. a few nights before. So, and yeah. as, as far as, um, I want to bring up, have you he- ever heard of, uh, I think it's just called the bystander effect where, um, cause you were, bringing up if if you see something suspicious tell someone find security i I think it's sometimes complicated because there's this thing called the bystander effect where if someone's in trouble or if something strange is happening in the back of our minds we think that someone else will take care of it someone else will go grab security like oh if if this if a warning sign is going off in my head obviously everyone else who's around here witnessing is having the same effect yeah, yeah so like someone else will go get it but if you're ever in a situation, I've been at, at, um, I was at a show once where someone was assaulting someone else and w- we all witnessed it in the mosh pit yet. No one went and did anything about it. And I reminded myself of the bystander effects and I was like, no one else is going to go get security. Oh, it's like five minutes yeah, have passed. Yeah. And I was like, Oh yeah, no one actually went. So I had to go and actually get security. Cause so in situations like this, remember the bystander effect and remember that don't count on someone else going to find security. You That's know? a great point. That's yeah. A, Cause yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of us think that way and just there's this, there's this culture of no snitching. Right. And like, oh, don't yeah. tell, you know, don't be a tattletale. Don't what, you know, you don't want to be that person, right. To go tell on somebody and then, you know, ends up, Oh, you're the one who told them, you know, like right. that's, that's something I feel like from a very young age, we're kind of like taught of like, don't be a tattletale, but it's like, obviously you got to discern the circumstances but when it's something more serious it's like throw that out the window i mean you might end up saving lives because you said something uh, and you know they go and investigate that person or they go and talk to that person and you end up you know saving that person's life or saving them from being harmed or or even you know just having a bad night so it's like it's 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 this hard stigma that we we need a break, but it's, it's important that we do because in just the, the way the world's going and just how dangerous it is and, and all of the, you know, all the evil that is out there, it's like, you, you just can't, you just can't assume that everything's going to be okay anymore. I can't assume that you're going to be safe. You can't assume any of these things anymore. And I think if you do that, you're doing yourself a, a, a disservice because you're, you're putting yourself into a mind state where if something does go wrong, you're going to, you're, it's going to be harder for you to react to, to the situation versus thinking, you know, kind of running those thoughts through your head beforehand so that if something does happen, at least you kind of already have a plan in your head of what you're going to do. And it could be for any reason. It's not necessarily because of an active shooting situation, but even a fire or something, you know what I mean? You just never, it's always good to kind of be aware of your, where the exits are, you know, what's my plan if, if this happens yeah. or don't trample others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just like, it's, it's all important to think about. And, and I think it's just a, it's just the reality of the world that we live in and there's no way to escape it at this point. Yeah. Because as we've seen with the, the, you know, the government and their lack of action and after all these different events and, and you know, that he was off the, t- he was on the terrorist watch list and yet he still was able to go buy a high powered rifle and everything. It's just like, and I don't want to get into all that cause it gets very, yeah, that's exactly political. And you know yeah. what I mean? It's just like, it's, and, and it doesn't go anywhere at the end of the day, nothing changes, nothing happens. So it's like, all we can do is try to try to do what we can and what we, and that's what you 
yeah. control with yourself. Focus and, on and your own responsibilities. So, yeah. Agreed. But yeah, but with all that being said, I want to end this episode with a, with a tribute to those that were, that were lost in this, this tragic event. And uh, that's, what's most important at the end of the day is their stories. These were all people. These are all had lives ahead of them and they were in a place that was their safety, you know, a place they felt safe and were having fun. And it's just, it's absolutely, it's absolutely horrific that this is, where they would then die. And I just want to remember those that were lost and, you know, that's, what's most important here. So with that being said, we'll see you guys next week.